This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, in episode 14, we talk about post-harvest in chickpeas. We're at that time of the year where many farmers have finished harvesting pulses, so it's a great time to think about what happens when they leave the farm. Phil Henricks of Henricks Trading Company in Washington will share how, over five generations, their family has helped to build the chickpea industry in the Palouse region of Washington and Idaho. If you're new to Pulse Crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. This show follows some Pulse Crop farmers through the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of industry stakeholders along the way. Phil Henricks is the president of Henricks Trading Company, which focuses on the trading and processing of pulses, mainly chickpeas, which are also called garbanzo beans. Stay tuned to hear more about why both names are used. The Henricks family has been instrumental in growing the reputation and acres of chickpeas in the Palouse for several years. Phil begins our conversation by talking about how it all got started. It started with my father uh, bringing chickpeas into the United States through Mexico. There was a couple other players in California and also in Idaho. You know, they were introducing them slowly, but there was a lot of disease problems. And so my father uh, got in cahoots with Washington State University on the, in the breeding program with Dr. Fred Muehlbauer, which is a renowned scientist. And uh, he invented many varieties of chickpeas that we play with today. And uh, the Sierra, the Dwelly, many others that uh, we go right down the line talking about. And what's really interesting about his varieties the Sierra has really stood the, the time frame of staying established. He also had others out there, but most of the others have not held up in the disease package or the yield. The world knows our variety called Sierra. We also have some new varieties today, but Dr. Fred Muehlbauer definitely was turning out some varieties and characteristics that he was finding uh, around the world. Since those early days, the acres have really expanded and the demand for chickpeas has really grown. A big part of what Henricks do is market them around the world. So I asked Phil to give us an idea of where chickpeas from his area, the Pacific Northwest, are ending up. Well, as we developed our marketing program, we definitely were introduced first globally. And we have always been an exporter of chickpeas. Now, that being said, obviously, they grow them all in many uh, areas, and so it's very competitive. But the quality that the chickpea of the United States has been able to grow has uh, definitely blossomed to the uh, blue chip buyers, as you would say. So the Mediterranean people have always enjoyed us. The Mexican markets fills those same lanes, and they do a great job with their commodity and their quality. And so we find ourselves not button heads in there, but definitely going down those same lanes. As we got a little bit more coverage in acres, then we started introducing it domestically. And what was uh, out there to start with uh, domestically was the canning industry. Well, the canning industry is something that just doesn't develop overnight. You know, it's an old school business. You know, from all vegetables, all pulses, all beans get canned. So there's not a lot of startup companies is where I'm going with that. So 
old school, old companies, and uh, you would just start working with them. Uh, the next avenue that was pretty much uh, in the grocery stores that you would see would be packaging. So we went in and filled those lanes and uh, introduced our product and showed that we had the ability to have a consistent uh, product available to the market. And the domestic market started waking up. Approximately 10 years ago, though, it really woke up. We started being introduced to the first thing that was new, which was the hummus market. It started out nice and slow, and then it started building its wings and became a, a big factor with new companies playing in that arena and finding a way to their food service and to the street. It's been overwhelming to this market and, and very uh, helpful. With that being said, though, we also answer the non-gluten, non-allergen world. So we find ourselves competing in the bread market, the flour market, add, goes to the crackers. And uh, the next thing you know, you got your dip and you got your chip market that is exploding. And uh, we've seen a, a nice growth in that. So export is one market to us. Domestic is very important to us also. Okay, before we go any further in this episode, we need to clear something up. Is it chickpea or is it garbanzo bean? Well, as you might guess, it's both. We say chickpea because that's the mother name and that's the uh, world known name. When we start talking and uh, using the word garbanzo, well, that comes out of the Spanish flavor and for a large chickpea. And so they named it, you know, garbanzos. So... The good news is the consumer is adapting to both names. But when you typically go into a store, you're going to be reading more than often the word chickpeas. Beyond the growing global demand for chickpeas, or garbanzo beans, if you please, another reason farmers adopted the crop was to diversify their rotation. But like any crop, it's not without its agronomic challenges. Well, let's go back to the, uh, the seed situation. Number one, they want to plant the seed that's going to be most desirable for the market. Okay. And so that takes a little work just being able to handle the variety. The next thing the grower will look at is the challenge of the planting window. They like to get these beans in from Washington to Idaho in Montana, they like to plant them in April. Well, weather is very challenging during those times, and it's also a 110-day growing season, where a pea and a lentil can be 80 to 90. So we're dealing with 30 extra days. So the challenge is to get them in early, but yet a chickpea doesn't like to sit in the ground too long in too cool weather. It does better if you plant it in the 50-degree soil temperature versus the 40. And those soil temperatures can change within weeks and days. So uh, it's a hit or miss for the grower. So the next challenge is getting the plant to emerge out of the ground. It's not overly difficult, but once any plant gets out of the ground, it has a lot of success and it can beat disease. Well, a chickpea doesn't have the energy that a piece of wheat has. A piece of wheat's very small, high energy, jumps out, moves. A chickpea is very large, 
So it doesn't move very well. It takes longer to germ under the ground and it can sit there and it can attract to many different attacks in the soil, borne diseases. So that's why we like warm temperatures. So now we've got the crop out of the ground. We've made it through the emergent stage. And once the next 45 days, we start looking for blight. And blight is in the soil. Okay, so the farmer has those challenges. Beans that the varieties are blight resistant doesn't always mean that that's going to save them. So we go through that. Then we go into our bloom stage, which is the last 45 days. It usually opens up in July. And now we're talking heat units. Well, a chickpea likes stress. So heat is a stress opportunity for it. It has a very deep tap root. So it's going down and going to keep its uh, roots nice and, you know, cool. And this is a success of the plant. That's why it grows longer. It's down there in the soil. It's got a tap root. Basically, if you look at a green pea, a green pea will uh, bloom approximately, I'll say, uh, 10 to 15 days, where a chickpea can start and its minimum is 20 and it can go as long as 45 to 50 days blooming. So that will carry out and it will yield more. And uh, it's really got a, a great place here because the farmer does not have to change any of his operational equipment. He can seed with the same drill that he does with wheat or peas, spray the same way, and then he can harvest with his conventional operation and not have to change his uh, method. Now, as someone who's handling chickpeas after harvest and marketing them around the world, Phil is obviously very concerned about quality. He's worked very hard to build the reputation of chickpeas from this area and is committed to maintaining a high standard. I asked what quality issues he sometimes runs into with chickpeas coming out of the field. You know, where we're dealing with really high stress heat levels, the plant is drying down too quick. Uh, the top a board on uh, the pods so they don't fill out or when they do fill out, they shrink up and give very small seeds. And so you get a mixed bag is what we call it. If it's too hot, you're going to have large beans and small beans and you always lose a yield. Then the next factor is, is the one that has high yield coming, lots of pods filling continually growing and then we run into weather problems and the weather becomes a factor and we start getting rains once a pod gets wet the bean is so big it starts expanding and then contracting back to dry down so we find ourselves in a long set time of trying to dry out a field and then if it rains again we've even seen snow on this crop and we've also seen stuff uh, harvested in you know, 18, 20% moisture, which was the 2019 crop, we spent a lot of time drying it down. So those are hurdles that we don't see uh, consistently, but, you know, being a 110 day crop, you're going to find yourself in some windows. And let me take it one step farther too. This crop does not like humidity. It's not for everybody. You know, once you fall into any humidity factors, then you're running into a situation 
where this crop will grow very nicely. You'll grow a lot of hay, but it will not set seeds. And so that's what keeps it from expanding across the United States. So assuming that there are none of these quality issues and that the quality is good on the chickpeas coming in, can they store a long time? I mean, is this like wheat where you can keep them for an extended period or is the marketing window pretty limited? Well, let's look at today's harvest. We're harvesting the beans and they're 9 to 10% moisture coming in. They'll store years. I mean, you know, you do have to manage your, your storage. But that's not uncommon for uh, people like ourselves. You know, we move the beans, we monitor the heat in bins, we put air on them. There's a lot of great ways of managing uh, bin stored beans. The other thing too, as a processor, we're always moving the product through. So we're watching for it. Uh, bugs aren't really a big problem with them uh, if you just do typical management practices. Now, I used to be in the grain trading business, and I know for us, the way we stayed in business was hedging everything that came in on the corn futures or wheat futures or soybean futures. But there's no chickpea futures. So how does a company like Henrik's manage their pricing risk with storing, processing, and handling such a high volume? Well, it, it starts with being called a specialty crop. And when you're dealing with specialty crops, growers understand that specialty crops move by the market. They're not something that you can just tailgate and sell and like wheat where you just come open it up, drop it at the elevator and pick yourself up a check. So the part that makes it interesting to a grower is number one, it's a rotational crop for his agronomy on his farm. So he's going to build soil. Uh, he's also going to break disease cycles. And so that's his focus. And then on the marketing side on a specialty crop, it takes 12 months to move a harvest. And most growers are on contracts with packagers or canners. So let's just say our canner comes in for a 12-month contract. Then the growers get offered their contract and they'll sit on a six to eight month contract along with the uh, processor and they'll feed them. Now that also brings a premium and that makes this crop, you know, more interesting. Anytime they're dealing with a specialty crop, you know, the farmer is looking for a reason why he has to maintain a holding pattern or a marketing pattern with it. So supply and demand right now, the world is, uh, in love with chickpeas, and uh, they tend to move uh, awfully well. But like pretty much all commodities, chickpeas were not immune to 2020. They had their share of volatility, as did pretty much everything else in the ag industry, with the trade issues and the pandemic. Well, first of all, I have to applaud our growers. Number one is, you know, back in 15, 16, 17, we were climbing the mountain. Things were going great. We uh, went from 200,000 acres to 400,000 acres to 600,000 acres and came 17 planting for 18 harvest. We came in and planted almost 800,000 acres as a country. And the U.S. wasn't the only one banging out acres. So with that, we found ourselves in a, in a really uh, interesting mode. We'd had never had supply. 
And then uh, we come back to this pandemic. Well, that wasn't the first thing that hit us. We got ourselves into a, some uh, trade situations and uh, Indian put a tariff on the world. The world had a big crop and the only place in the world that had new marketing, new consumers that were very young was the U.S. So we had all of our competitors around the world start offering beans into the U.S. And it basically took our market from about 32 cents from a grower's standpoint, clear down to 20 cents, you know, in one year. I mean, just a, a really tough situation. And we had an oversupply. So then we came into 19 and we got our acreage down to about 400,000, cut it almost in half. And uh, things were starting to clean out. Traditional move of a, of a long position, a carryover, started moving nicely. Consumers were just really enthusiastic about pulses in general, chickpeas as a protein. And there was a lot of new uh, factors and markets to sell into. And then uh, February of uh, 2020, the pandemic really opened up its eyes to us. And in the U.S., we found out that 50% of our demand in the U.S. was being consumed by food service. And food service to the public that's listening is, you know, anybody that's uh, selling to restaurants, moving it on the street, people eating out. And we have definitely seen a major slowdown to something that it was just, you know, unprecedented. And it's been a huge play. Uh, we actually saw our market go clear down to 14 cents on a grower, which was the loan rate from the government. So growers went under loan. Once again, we're uh, building a carryout over and uh, we still have not seen the uh, food service return. We've seen little blimps of it, which has been nice, but we're very concerned about where our market's going. Uh, the, the acreage that's being uh, presented out there for 21 uh, looks okay, but unfortunately we're not moving that carryover because of the pandemic. We, we just need that to move on, but you know, it's a slow process. Despite a very difficult year and Phil's concern in the near term, he remains optimistic about the long-term outlook for chickpeas. What I really love about this market is we are domestically driven. We have energized the domestic U.S. market, the new ways of handling chickpeas. I mean, protein is a big word, protein burgers, protein food. There is some not boutiques anymore developing ways to use chickpeas, but you know we're going to see yogurt, we're going to see milk, we're going to see uh, these type of uh, proteins being consumed and introduced to the U.S. market and North America, and it's going to be very exciting. The grower will always be back. I mean, he follows the uh, market trend, and he also knows how to grow them. And they have a lot of confidence. So we have the, the uh, table set. We have an industry that's full of interest. We have the ability to uh, supply our end users. And at the end of the day, 
we're survivors. And your partners are three people. Your partners are the farmers, the processors, and the end users. And they never go away. The, uh, the ones that go away are the people in the finance business. You know, they're, they're the ones jumping around all the time. And unfortunately, right now, uh, the pulse industry is playing at a low level right now, and it's got lots of opportunity in it. And the people that know the opportunity are uh, putting their nose in it right now. So I expect that this market to rally quickly once we get this pandemic and understanding of how our consumers are going to live their life again. Well, thank you very much to Phil Henricks of Henricks Trading Company for being on the show. I really enjoyed that perspective on the industry from both an agronomic and an economic perspective. We only have one episode left in season one of Growing Pulse Crops, but you can catch all of the previous episodes on our website, www.growingpulsecrops.com. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you your final episode of Season 1 very soon. <music>